Welcome to the Formed in the Word podcast, a production of the Augustan Institute. Your hosts, Dr. Jim Prothro and Dr. Israel McGrew, will review the lectionary readings for this Sunday's Mass, explain their context, and help you to appreciate the Church's wisdom in selecting them. Hello. Welcome to Formed in the Word. I'm Israel McGrew. I'm James Prothro, and I'm wearing Dr. Gray's tie. <laughs> and we are professors of sacred scripture at the Augustine Institute. Today we'll be looking at the lectionary readings <laughs> for the fourth Sunday of Advent. We'll explain each reading in turn, their context, some of their main points, and draw out some of the continuity between these readings that the Church, in her wisdom, has put together to lead us into the mystery of Christ. This is a resource for lay people who want to, want to enter the Mass more deeply by reflecting on the Word in advance. It's also especially for priests who want to reflect on the Word as they prepare their homilies in advance of feeding their congregations on the Word. Thanks so much for that introduction. Uh, I'm going to open us up now in prayer, uh, and as I did last week uh, with a prayer attributed to Origen, uh, who's a giant of biblical interpretation in the early church. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, inspire us to read your scriptures and meditate upon them day and night. We beg you to give us real understanding of what we need, that we in turn may put its precepts into practice. Yet we know that understanding and good intentions are worthless unless rooted in your graceful love. So we ask that the words of scriptures may also be not just signs on a page, but channels of grace into our hearts. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, thank you. Um, today's readings are all really centered on the relationship between God and the son of David, who's also the son of God, right? In the Davidic covenant, and this was one of the God's gifts to David and to his dynasty that David's sons would be called his son, right? This would be the context of adoption. Obviously in Christ, this takes on a new meaning, who is both son of God literally, as well as Son of David according to the flesh. Yeah, so this, just to clarify for anybody, um, uh, and this is in Second Samuel 7, right? Right, uh, David the Covenant. Lord mm-hmm. says, David, I'll build a dynasty for you, right? So it won't be like Saul where he was king and now he's gone and now new family, right? But that David's line will always have a, a king on the throne over God's people. And he says, right, he will be a son to me and I will mm-hmm. be to him a father. Right? Right. So the Davidic king is a kind of son of God. And of course, there's a big Davidic king who's the son of God mm-hmm. in, completely. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so our first reading is from Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 14. And this is going to be worth just reading in its entirety. The Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ahaz is a Davidic king. He's actually a really bad Davidic king. He burns his son with fire. You can read uh, 2 Kings chapter 16 and 17 to learn more about Ahaz in 18 and 19 to learn about his son Hezekiah, who is a good king. So Isaiah goes to Ahaz on behalf of the Lord. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which you know means God with us. 
And so this is obviously very famous, and it's also a little confusing as you read it. Mm. Like, I just told you that Ahaz is a bad guy, but he just said, I will not put the Lord to the test, which sounds like something Jesus said, right? You will not tempt the Lord your God. So this sounds like a pious phrase, but then Isaiah seems to be kind of mad. In fact, Isaiah is mad, right? Oh, house of David, will you weary my God? So the Lord will himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Aha, Jesus. Jesus is God with us. This is beautiful. Hmm. This is a good thing. But we know Ahaz is a bad king, and Isaiah seems to be mad. And so it's kind of bewildering what's going on here. Hmm. And so the historical context of this passage is really key, I think, for understanding what's going on. Right. So in the in the start of chapter seven, and we get this in Second Kings sixteen and seventeen for its kind of larger narration. In the start of chapter seven, we have northern kingdoms, right? Israel, the northern kingdom of Israel or Ephraim, and Syria that are invading the south. They're looking to take Ahaz off the throne and put their kind of puppet king on. That way they can all be in a coalition against Assyria. And so Ahaz recognizes that his throne is in jeopardy. And God goes, sends Isaiah to him with his son, Shear Yashuv, right? great prophetic son's names, you know, thanks dad. I guess he's your prophet and you didn't have a choice. But Shear Yashuv means a remnant will return. Right? So Isaiah's son, is it's, his name is a prophetic act. Mm. Right? So Isaiah goes with his son, Shear Yashuv, right? a remnant will return to tell Ahaz, it's okay. Just trust God and you will be fine. And in fact, this is where we get this really famous expression in verse nine, the head of Ephraim, right? Israel, this is one of the Northern kingdoms and the head of Samaria, the son of Ramalia, these two Northern kingdoms that are attacking you, they're gonna be destroyed within 65 years. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Um, this verse has been famously kind of mistranslated in the Septuagint as, mm. If you don't believe, you won't understand. And this uh, has had a lot of life, actually, in the Western tradition. Mm. Um, but the Hebrew idiom of faith is actually to judge, to consider, to think of a thing as being sturdy, mm. as being mm. reliable, as being firm. And so if you're dizzy and you see a table and you consider, you trust that it is firm, then you will lean on it and you'll rely on it. Mm. And so belief always implies action, mm. right? If you believe a tower is strong and able to defend you from your enemies, well, you go into the tower. And if you believe in God, this isn't just an intellectual thing. It actually implies that you trust that he is powerful and strong and faithful, and therefore you entrust yourself to him. And because you trust his power, his strength, his sturdiness, if you will, you actually participate in that strength, that sturdiness. And so this is what the ESV is doing with this translation. If you're not firm in faith, that's one word, right? If you don't believe, you will not be firm at all. That's again, one word. You will not stand firm. And so this is Isaiah's invitation. Mm. Do nothing, trust God. And Ahaz says, no, I'm not gonna put the Lord to the test. And if you read Second Kings, he in fact goes and he hires the king of Assyria to come and defend him. So instead of entrusting himself to God, with whom he's in this covenantal relationship and God is his father, he goes to the king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser III, another great name, um, TP3, you could call him for short. And he says, I am your son, you are my father. All right, so he enters into a covenant with 
the king of Assyria. He entrusts himself to the king of Assyria instead of to God. This is why Isaiah is not very happy. Mm-hmm. Um, right? What seems like a pious speech, I will not test the Lord, is a refusal to trust him. Right? Don't test the Lord. Unless you're like in a position of doubt and God says, test me. Mm-hmm. Let me vindicate my trustworthiness. Let me give you a chance to help you trust me. And so the rest of this passage is about the destruction of the two northern kingdoms and will be destroyed um, within a few years. And this is what Emmanuel signifies, right? So picking up as our reading continues, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, right? Before you have like taste preferences, uh, the land whose kings you dread will be deserted. And this happens within like two years, right? So obviously, right? Isaiah 7, 14, virgin will conceive, bear a son, and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. As Matthew 1, 21 makes very clear, this ultimately, this oracle ultimately refers to Christ. But God is also speaking to a more proximate historical situation. God actually cares what Ahaz does. Mm -hmm. And so it's worth recognizing that this Emmanuel oracle has a historical context. And when we turn to Matthew in a moment, we'll see how maybe this historical context can actually help us appreciate just what is being done in Matthew. So if you look at chapter eight, um, there are basically two different candidates for whom this oracle might've been understood to refer to historically. Um, One would be Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz. Um, And chapters nine through 11 continue to talk about this Davidic son, this Davidic king, right? We saw chapter 11 a couple of weeks ago right, with this stump of Jesse and the root that comes out, the shoot that comes out, um, and we saw how that is also applied to Christ. Um, But we can also see very much how chapters 9 through 11 apply to Hezekiah. And so it's really easy to apply um, this child who's born with the child who's born in chapter 9 through 11. Um, But we also have another candidate in Isaiah's second son with an even more fun name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. This is in chapter eight, verses one through three, where Isaiah actually impregnates a prophetess and she bears a son. And the Lord says, not call his name Emmanuel, but call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to cry, my father, Avi, or my mother, Emi, right? These are pretty easy things for a toddler to say. Um, The wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Assyria. So we have these two prophetic sons, right? Isaiah already has a prophetic son in Shear Yeshuv. And God says, there's going to be this other son who's going to be born. And all these things are going to happen within his first couple years of life. And then Isaiah actually impregnates a prophetess. And all of these things happen throughout the first couple years of his life. And in fact, the term Emmanuel repeats in Isaiah 8, Mm. right? Uh, Assyria is going to destroy the Northern kingdoms. And because you didn't listen because you didn't obey, O son of David, he's also going to punish you, right? If you do not believe, you will not be, you will not stand firm. Ahaz doesn't believe, he trusts Assyria instead. And Assyria itself comes and becomes the Lord's um, vessel of punishment. So Assyria is going to come and is going to punish Judah for being unfaithful. And it will fill, he will outspread his wings and fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel, right? In verse eight. And again, in verse 10, take counsel together. The Northern kingdoms are conspiring. 
and the kingdom of Judah is conspiring with Assyria, right? There's all these political intrigues going on mm-hmm. in these chapters. And God says, take counsel together. It will come to nothing. Speak a word. It will not stand for God is with us, Emmanuel. And so Emmanuel in this passage, right? We have this completely analogous figure in Maher Shalal Hashbaz, who signifies all of the same things that Emmanuel signifies, but God also didn't let Isaiah name his son Emmanuel. And mm. so there is this beautiful little dissonance mm. in the two oracles, which I think um, allows the room for later readers of Isaiah 7 to think, to think well, who was this Emmanuel guy? Mm. We know about Maher Shalal Hashbaz, but who was Emmanuel? Yeah, and and in a in in, a, in another way too, right? This sort of the 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 full the fullness of the meaning of all of the words, right? Emmanuel, that he he's not a, just a sign that God is with us, but that the one prophesied will truly be God with us, right? In mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, and similarly also with the virgin birth. And one of the things that uh, uh, because of course you, a virgin can conceive and bear a son just and then loses just virginity in the being, process by, by losing their virginity, right? right. Um, but this one will be a virgin who remains a virgin. Mm-hmm. While uh, 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 yet also being a mother, and it, it was something that uh, just to throw in quick that struck me when you were talking about uh, Ahaz and his seemingly pious refusal to test God. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't need God to give me a sign. Oh, I would never do that, right? And it makes Isaiah mad. Well, I uh, also sometimes right, it's it's worth it's worth remembering right when when God doesn't give you a sign right or when God makes a promise to you and you say prove it give me a sign right that's a sign of unfaith right mm-hmm. but if God says I'm going to give you a sign to demonstrate to you right to comfort you yeah right and then you say eh, I don't need that because no I told you I'm giving you I want to give you a sign mm-hmm. it's another way of rejecting and it's there's a a slight parallel. I'm just going to pull this out, and then we can. Uh, I, I'll, 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 I'll pull back here. But there's, the, I mean, have you heard? I know I've heard. And maybe you haven't heard it, right? But I know I've heard some people say, "Well, I don't need." Right? They have like doubts about a doctrine, maybe about the virgin birth, right? And they go, "Well, I don't need miraculous things to believe in God." I don't need the son to be born of a virgin and, or to have been raised from the dead. I can just believe in the love of God without all that extra stuff. I don't need, I don't, I don't need to like believe it hard or for you to prove it or anything like that. I just, I can, you know, it's like, well, m- m- maybe, and if God didn't give you these things as really important parts of your faith, then it would be fine and maybe pious to say, oh, I don't need extra proof. Mm-hmm. But these are proofs that he gave you. Yeah. So what you say to them is thank you, and you believe them, right? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so there's a, maybe a little bit of a parallel there. Okay, pulling yeah. off of that. <laughs> yeah, so I just want to draw one more thing out before we move on to the gospel, um, which is the kind of dual significance of Emmanuel, right? Like we said, you know, we know this in the context of Matthew one twenty one, and we know this in the context of the great Advent song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Um, And so I think we have, by and large, dominantly positive connotations with this term. Mm -hmm. And if you read much of the Gospel of Matthew, you'll realize that Jesus is a pretty gentle, loving, kind person. But if you refuse that love, he can also be pretty severe, right? The last few chapters in 26 around there, the destruction of Jerusalem, right? Um, 
That, that's what mm. Isaiah is talking about, is if you refuse the God of love, the, right, these waters that flow gently, right, this divine provision without destruction, if you refuse that and choose instead you know, the ways of the world, the ways of coercion and domination, well, then you will be coerced and dominated. Right? Um, God comes with love and the invitation to trust. But if you refuse to trust, if you refuse to give yourself to the God who can stabilize you, you'll get your own instability as the logical consequence of that. If you hire Assyria as a refusal to trust God, and you in fact imitate Assyria's cult and worship Assyria's gods, well, Assyria is going to keep on marching and they're going to enter into your land too. And so Emmanuel in Isaiah 7 and 8, the emphasis is on judgment mm-hmm. and on mm-hmm. suffering um, right, this vengeance, divine vengeance for unfaith. But there's also um, in in both chapter seven and in chapter eight, it ends with a note of hope, right, for the remnant. This is the kind of prophetic trope um, that a lot of people are bad; they're going to get punished, and it's going to be really bad. Innocent people are going to die too, probably. But God will preserve a remnant, and God is with them as well, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. it's always justice and mercy. And God's continuing uh, faithfulness and devotion to the remnant. And if we also have in mind this juxtaposition of these two kings, right? Ahaz and Hezekiah. Ahaz, son of David, wicked king. Hezekiah is the king who remains after Ahaz dies. And God continues to work out his salvation through this latter son of David, mm-hmm. who, of course, as well as uh, Emmanuel, um, in chapter seven and eight, Mahershala Hashbaz, in chapters nine through 11, Hezekiah also operates as a type of Christ, right? These images of types of Christ. Mm-hmm. So I think we can turn to the gospel. I think so, yeah, that's a, um, oftentimes we just go through kind of in order with Old Testament, Psalm, Epistle, and then Gospel, but it's really fitting to jump straight to the gospel uh, for this week. So for this fourth Sunday in Advent, Uh, Our gospel lesson comes from Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 18 through 24. Um, And this is the birth of Jesus in Matthew's account. So remember, Luke has uh, the shepherds. It has a really heavy focus on Mary and Mary's perspective when she goes to see Elizabeth. We have the Magnificat. Um, But Matthew's gospel uh, tells things a a lot of times through uh, St. Joseph. And this is is quite key. because Joseph, as someone in the Davidic family, right, and as the father, right, in the household, is the one who can adopt, right, the son, uh, or right, put his name on the son, uh, so that he can be a legitimate uh, uh, heir and uh, of the Davidic um, tribe. And and this is how the angel addresses him, Joseph, son of David. Exactly right. The angel says, Joseph, son of David, and the angel commands Joseph specifically. He says, you will call, you, you singular, you, Joseph, will name him Jesus. Right? And those are focal points here, right? It's the birth of Christ uh, and what the angel reveals to Joseph, the son of David, and Jesus coming uh, into this family. And of course, the whole gospel begins in those first verses, right before our passage, with the genealogy of Jesus Christ which goes from Abraham all the way to David and then through the line of Davidic kings and other heirs of David uh, that come all the way down to Jesus. And of course, it's a, 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 a history and a genealogy of, of ups and downs, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's great figures in it. Um, there's no perfect figures in it. 
Um, and there's lots of, there's little mentions specifically of uh, births of great kings and great lines through women who, uh, 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 who raised eyebrows in one way or another, yeah. either because they were uh, originally from right, Gentile or pagan groups, they weren't proper Israelites who came into the family, um, uh, or because of something else questionable about their relationship uh, with the, uh, the husband, right, the begetter of the child. Um, there's kings here who were assassinated, poisoned, killed. There's people who were somewhat more humble, and it comes all the way down, of course, to Joseph. But this is the line into which Jesus uh, is, is brought, and very beautifully, right, um, just as in the Old Testament, um, uh, Israel mentioned earlier in 2 Samuel 7, where God speaks of the son of David, right, these human kings, as though he's going to kind of adopt them into mm -hmm. his family as God's own son as well. Now here we have one who, in fact, is God's son and being, right? Adopted uh, into the Davidic line. Adopted into the Davidic line through Joseph's uh, naming him. So the birth of Jesus Christ takes place differently than the others in this way, right? Mary and Joseph were betrothed to each other, um, but before they came together, right? So that is to say they're legally betrothed. It's kind of like engagement, but it's it's not because we like to back out of things, right? Um, and if you've seen like maybe the beginning of Fiddler on the Roof, you might be able to, to get more of a grasp on this. Um, and really, you know, that, that, that actually is, is a good analog. Tradition. You, yeah, tradition. But you, you actually, you contract marriage, right? before you move in together and before the wife comes into the husband's household. So they're legally married, even though today it would be more like engagement, and right, and you can just throw your ring into the Hudson River, you know, and uh, go off and run off with somebody else, right? That happens a lot today. Back then, right, in order to break an engagement, a betrothal, you had to actually give a legal certificate, right, to cancel your marriage. Um, and that's what, uh, Joseph contemplates doing here because he's been doing what's right, and now he's looking at his wife and saying, oh, well, ooh, what's happened? Yeah. She's pregnant, and it wasn't me. Mm -hmm. right, so again, another eyebrow-raising birth, right? Um, and he's trying to be righteous in this, it says, right? Um, right? He's, he's, he's a righteous man. Um, so he wants to do this, right, for himself, right, for his own future, his children, right, and everything. And else he wants like to do it quietly. And right? he wants to do it quietly. Being yeah. righteous entails mercy. That's right. I think that already implies. That's right. Yeah. So he's going to be merciful. He's not trying to make a big mm -hmm. public show of it. He's not dragging her out into the middle of town and going, "Guess what, guys?" I mean, there's even a passage in the um, uh, law in the Book of Numbers, right, where there's a there's a, a test um, that somebody can go through if there's a suspected adultery. Um, uh, right, it publicly and in front of the priest. He doesn't do that. Right? Uh, but no matter what it is that he's got in his head or whatever his motivations are, uh, his piety really comes through when he responds to the angel because he responds with faith. Mm -hmm. Everything, I love that image you had before, everything in his world is spinning right now, right? My wife is pregnant, wasn't me. We're not married married yet, even though we've got the contract. Let's... Yeah. Let's cancel this, right? Everything is spinning, right? But then an angel appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She'll bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus 
Yeshu, Yeshua, right, uh, uh, is related to Joshua, the name Joshua, and Hosea, and they all come from the Hebrew uh, root that means save or salvation. So that's what Jesus' name means, the Lord saves. The angel tells him this, right? And if I had a, if I was confused about stuff in my life that I knew right in front of me, right, and then I had a dream where an angel talked to me and told me something different, I'd wonder about it, I hope. <laughs> but you know what I would probably put more of my trust in and lean on when everything was spinning, when it was the stuff that I knew in front of me? Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph leans on the words of the angel. That's where he puts his trust. That's where he knows his firm foundation is and believes with faith that it's from the Lord. And he takes her as his wife. Right? Verse 24, this is outside of the reading, right? but we know what happens. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel commanded him. He took his wife, and he knew her not until she'd given birth to a son, right? or all, all during the time. Right? Um, Joseph responds with faith, and the son is born from a virgin. Matthew makes really clear in verse 25, right, not only to say that Joseph wasn't the one who right, brought about the child, but that Joseph didn't even get close to her after that, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it says the translation is until she had given birth to the son, uh, which sometimes people will take implies that, well, after she yeah. gave birth to Jesus, then you know they got on with marriage as usual. But it's the same word for until that Jesus says in Matthew 28 when he says, behold, I'm with you until the end of the age. That doesn't mean he's not going to be with them after that, right? It just the means end of like this all era, the way up I'm to out. that point. <laughs> it just means from now on and up to that point, right, uh, and, and beyond as well. Yeah, the inference of what comes after is not valid. Exactly, yeah, that's right. Um, so we're reading into it if we assume that in verse 25. But Matthew makes sure to say this is a virgin birth, mm -hmm. right, completely. And in that is fulfilled not just the promise that David will have descendants and that they'll be kings, or even that you might name one of them Joshua or Savior. But even more than that, the fulfillment of the promise in Isaiah 7, right? The most perfect fulfillment of it, mm -hmm. right? That the virgin yeah. will conceive and bear a son, and they'll call his name Emmanuel, which is interpreted God with us, because that's who he is. Yeah, and I think it's worth just taking a moment with the language of verse 22, right? All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, right, by Isaiah. Um, because it hasn't been fulfilled, mm -hmm. right? And it's also worth observing that it's what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. And so Isaiah, you know, in the 8th century BC, is in fact speaking authoritatively, representing God's perspective to Ahaz. Mm -hmm. um, Ahaz, who is actually included in the genealogy here mm -hmm. as mm -hmm. a, an example of uh, a son of David gone bad, um, but the speech itself, you know, God is speaking to that situation, but there's also a level in which the speech continues to speak mm -hmm. and remains unfulfilled. Mm -hmm. So I think that we can, you know, look back at Isaiah 7 and 8 and really appreciate the fact that when Isaiah's son is born, who is also a prophetic sign, who signifies all the same things that the mm -hmm. Emmanuel's son is supposed to signify, um, that God intervened and had him name him something else. Mm -hmm. And it's also perhaps worth observing, I'm going to do it anyway, because I'm in the chair, um, that whereas Emmanuel in, throughout the oracle has these two valences of you know, severe judgment and then mercy for the remnant, um, God names the first Emmanuel son, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, which is all negative, right? 
hasten spoils, you know, hurry up plunder essentially, um, because all of these plunders and spoils are going to be carried off. Whereas now we have a different interpretation on Emmanuel, right? Uh, neither Emmanuel child is actually named Emmanuel. Both Emmanuel children are named something else that expands on what it is for God to be with us. Mm-hmm. And so now here we have a shift, which isn't complete, right? Jesus does still speak prophetically and pronounce destruction and punishment. Um, but there is a, a shift in emphasis, right? Mm-hmm. God is with us and he's here to save. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And um, so skipping here, we've only got a couple of minutes, um, but as a short note, the, the epistle to the Romans draws all of this in together and really draws uh, uh, the prophecies, the Davidic line, and the coming of Christ as God with us uh, into the church through Jesus' resurrection and the presence of the Holy Spirit uh, in the apostolic church. Uh, So Paul introduces himself at the beginning of Romans. This epistle reading uh, for the last Sunday in Advent is from Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. And St. Paul here says, right, I'm an apostle for the gospel of God that God promised a long time ago through the prophets and the scriptures. It was about his son, the son of God, right, who is God, God with us, is descended from David according to the flesh. He's the son of God. And this is demonstrated in his resurrection by the Holy Spirit. And through that Lord ascended, who has sent out his Holy Spirit, we've received apostleship to bring all of the nations to obedience, to the obedience of faith. So that all of us, right, that we as the um, church, right, that's where we sit, right, that the Lord was promised has finally come, the Son of God, the Son of David, risen and ascended and has sent out his Holy Spirit so that even though he's ascended into heaven, and really not just even though, but right, because he's ascended into heaven, he's sent out his spirit so that he can be present right, in his power, his wonderful presence, right, Emmanuel, God with us in each one of us by the Holy Spirit and in the church. And that through the ministry of the church, we are brought to that same faith, that same trust, and that same right, strength in the Lord, right, yeah. stability, um, so that we can, right, if you're, if, you're, if you're not firm in faith, you won't be firm so that we can be firm, right, yeah. because of him. I've, I don't remember what theologian I read this in, but I remember saying something to the effect that through faith you actually participate in God's omnipotence, mm. Mm. Um, which just sounds kind of a weird way of putting it. But I guess you can think of it in terms of if you have the faith of the mustard seed, you can tell the mountain, be cast mm. into the sea, and it will do it. And that's an, Only God can do that. Um, but also what we saw in, in terms of how the kind of the Hebrew language works in terms of these two terms with the same root, right? Um, being steadfast, being stable. And by recognizing God's steadiness, mm-hmm. you actually become stable. Mm-hmm. And God gifts this to you. That's right. And beautifully, thinking about sort of having a kind of share in God's omnipotence, you can think about it almost um, uh, like a little, a little pragmatically too. Say, well, if we, if we do what he says and go where he leads, well, actually act as though we know what he does because he tells us to do things knowing way more than we do. <laughs> and if we just trust ourselves, we'll end up only acting with very short-sighted vision. But if we trust him uh, and heed him and obey him, uh, then we're actually following in with a plan that is so big that we couldn't even imagine it. Um, so that's we're, we're, we're about at time. Do you want to say anything really brief about uh, the psalm today, Psalm 24? Yeah, um, this is a fantastic so psalm. 
Um, so Psalm 24 verses one through six are in the reading. Um, and again, this is a Psalm of David. And we have the affirmation of God as creator. And you go to worship the God who is the creator in his temple. And so David asked the question, who will ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. And presumably, right, a lot of people are in fact walking up the Temple Mount, right, going to worship God. Um, and so this is an invitation to all of the ancient Israelites to, you know, clean their hands and purify their heart, not lift up, the, not set your soul on what is false and not swear deceitfully so that you can receive blessing from the Lord. Um, but ultimately, right, as these, all four of these readings kind of play with the theme of David and Christ, um, the son of David as the son of God. And we can read this and should read this Christologically, right? Christ in his incarnation actually went up the hill on which the temple was built, standing, you know, outside of the temple with clean hands and pure heart in a way that no one else ever had done. And so the son of David fulfills what David had discussed, these ideals that David had evoked in this psalm, in this psalm as an invitation to us to imitate. Um, so David's actually inviting us to imitate Christ before the incarnation, mm -hmm. uh, which is really beautiful. But then also the last four verses, which are not part of the reading, um, lift up your heads, O gates, be lift up that the king of glory may come in. Like, oh, this is a Psalm of David. So David's king. He has glory. Okay. No. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. Um, and of course, you can't help but hear Handel's Messiah, <laughs> right? Um, he is the king of glory, the Lord of hosts. And so, you know, Christologically, Christ as the son of David, you know, in the incarnation actually did, in fact, walk up this hill. Um, but as Handel points out, Christ doesn't just walk up the hill into ascend towards the earthly temple, but actually in his ascension, um, because he died, because he did what the other sons of David failed to do in trusting and in thereby um, enjoying and participating in his own omnipotence um, and realizing this in his human person, um, therefore also ascends not just the earthly temple, but to heaven itself. Right? These are the everlasting doors that received the King of glory, the son of David, the son of God. Mm. Amen. That's beautiful. Well, I hope that, um, uh, and uh, if you pray your um, breviary in the daily office, um, Psalm 24 is one of the invitatory psalms that you can uh, pray at the beginning of your day. Um, and it's a wonderful thing to reflect on. Thank you um, for that. And also, of course, for the fourth Sunday in Advent. Well, that's all the time that we have. Uh, God bless you as you continue to be formed in his word. I've been Dr. James Prothrow. <laughs> I'm still Dr. Israel McGrew. <laughs> God bless you. Happy Advent. This has been a Formed in the Word podcast, a production of the Augustine Institute. For more inspiring and informative content like this, please visit formed.org.